you're just dealing with weather you're in the mountains and he he was like i'm gonna train to be a mountain guide i was helping him with his studying for his exams like just like going through all the process all the things that you have to learn to be to be a guide a rock guide and i i was like man i should i should should find a way out too you know like i can't be a professional climber forever Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Shanti. Welcome back. This is episode 26 of the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. Abby is back with me today, and today we're going to be chatting with rock climber and business owner Matt Siegel. Uh, Matt is one of the best trad and sport climbers in the country, and he sent several first ascents on some extremely difficult climbs in Colorado, uh, China, and a whole bunch of other places. If you're not sure exactly everything I just said in the last sentence, trad climbing, sport climbing, scent, et cetera, it's okay. We're going to get into more detail on that stuff when we actually chat with Matt. And of course, we're also going to talk a bit about Matt's business, Alpine Start. If you like coffee in the outdoors, and let's be honest, if you're listening to this, odds are you probably do. And um, if you haven't tried or even heard of Alpine Start, you're going to want to hear about it today from Matt. And uh, if you do know Alpine Start or have even tried it, I still guarantee you're going to learn a thing or two today about the business in our talk with Matt. So really looking forward to having a lot of fun with him today. But uh, real quick before we get into it, wanted to let you know that if you are into rock climbing or even if you've ever thought about trying some climbing outside, did you know you can actually use Gaia GPS to help you out with getting to your next crag? Let me give you a quick example. Back in November, uh, I went down to Red Rocks just outside of Vegas with some buddies of mine for a rock climbing trip, and we used two things. We used a written guidebook to figure out which crags we wanted to hit in the Red Rocks, and then um, we would pull up Gaia GPS, and we used the Gaia Topo map to be able to actually find the crag and then successfully navigate to it. So what's really cool about Gaia in terms of rock climbing is that the Gaia Topo map includes hundreds of crags, not just in the U.S., but worldwide. And that's on top of the hundreds of maps that are available within Gaia and its complete reliability for tracking and offline navigation. Bottom line, Gaia GPS is the gold standard backcountry navigation tool. And right now, if you go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast, you can get a 50% discount on a premium membership. So whatever you're doing in the backcountry, whether it's hiking, rock climbing, or whatever, you're going to need Gaia GPS. And if you like saving a few bucks, you're going to need to go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast to get that 50% discount. In the meantime, let's have a little chat with Matt Siegel. For our non-climber audience that are listening, I would say 101, who are you and what do you do, Matt? Hi, my name is Matt Siegel. I'm a professional climber, um, so rock climbing mostly, but I kind of do a little bit of all the aspects of climbing. Uh, I'm been climbing for about i don't know over 20 years um and yeah it's pretty awesome yeah i guess for people that aren't familiar with climbing and stuff like that i actually grew up um started off my climbing career uh in miami florida where i'm from and started off doing competitions um and from there it's not i kind of grew out of doing the competitions and moved to boulder colorado where i still live today and it got way into kind of climbing outdoors and traditional climbing um, and expedition climbing. Well, whoa, 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 back up one second. So you're saying you grew up in the rock climbing mecca of the world, Miami, Florida? I know, it's pretty insane. I grew up in, yeah, I grew up in <laughs> Miami. I used to go to camp in North Carolina where I like experienced climbing for the first time at like kind of like eight or nine years old. 
And then I came home one year and there was a climbing gym and went once and was immediately hooked. Um, so pretty much from the ages of like 13, like through high school, like all of high school, I was like, you know, obsessively focused with training for climbing and climbing and traveling for the competitions. I would like typically always miss the first and last week of school in high school because I was uh, either at um, youth nationals in the United States or youth world championships in Europe. I went a couple times. Um, so, yeah. And, and at the time, that was the beginning of the climbing era where you started to have people like me that started climbing inside, not outside. Mm-hmm. What did you like about climbing, especially being inside growing up in Florida where it's so sunny? Yeah, I think in the beginning for me, it was like a combination of a being good at something like I was kind of not really that good at uh, team sports or anything like that as a kid. So I found something that I was good at. And I think that really felt good. And then the other thing was the movement, like the movement of climbing gymnastically um, was always pretty fun and pretty entertaining. And, you know, as we, as we continue along this conversation, I think, you know, we'll get into like, for me, my relationship with climbing has definitely like shifted from like, yeah, like back then when I was in high school, it was like all about like kind of being good at it and like the fun, hard moves, like very movement based, Mm. which, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, that plays a part in it now. I'm, I'm 36 years old. So, you know, we're talking, 20 years ago. Um, uh, it plays a part in it now, but that's, I wouldn't say that's the main focus now or the main reason. So how did you slowly start? Or maybe it was rapidly shift from indoor comp climbing to the outdoors. Yeah. So, you know, in high school, I was way into the competitions in college. I moved to Boulder, Colorado. I went to kind of took like a couple months in between high school and, and college and went to Europe and did some world cups and, was pretty psyched and, and met some people and they're like, Oh, like if you want to be a professional climber, like you got to move to Boulder. And I was like, okay, like, you know, sure. I'll move to Boulder. Like, um, and, uh, moved to Boulder, uh, and went to college and in college was like the first, you know, freshman and sophomore year were pretty, uh, still doing all the comps and still traveling and all the time off. And eventually like, I kind of just got bored with it. Um, it, there was like a shift happening in climbing where you couldn't like in order to really do well in the comps, like you had to continue to train inside and spend more time inside. And, you know, after leaving Florida and moving to, to Colorado, I'd been spending so much more time climbing outside, like, like starting to really kind of like fall in love with sport climbing, which is climbing when the protections already in the rock and bouldering, which is uh, not super high rocks where you use pads on the bottom um, as protection and safety. Um, So I got way into those two aspects of climbing. And I think it was like 2004, 2005, I had like a really good bouldering competition season and route climbing season, really, because I I would do all the comps like I would compete. Now people are a little bit more specialized, minus the few people training for the 2020 Olympics. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like really kind of would, would do like all the different styles of climbing competitions and kind of had a good year and was just like kind of over it and was looking for just something a little bit more uh, engaging than that. And at that time I was introduced to a really good friend of mine and was like my tra- climbing mentor, um, Eric Takaria. And he kind of took me under his wing for many years um, and kind of taught me the ways of, of trad climbing, which is where, there is no protection 
um, in the rock. So you have to place it yourself using kind of passive protection um, and non-passive protection like cams and, and stuff like that. That's kind of where I really, really got motivated. And all of a sudden it was this, you know, I was climbing physically and mentally challenged. That makes sense. I don't think we've ever talked about the fact that we had such parallel trajectories moving to Boulder. So I moved to Boulder as a track and field athlete, right? Yeah. So I'm running around a, a circle on a track, come to Boulder, and there's these amazing network of trails. And it's like, how can you not get off the track and start exploring outside? And it sounds like it was really similar for you. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, you know, I went to went to school and um, yeah, and I had some like pretty big influences in my life that were like, yeah, you're going to be a you're going to be a world cup competition climber. Like you're going to like represent the U S and I kind of, that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, it's so interesting how we build up in our minds, what's important and what's going to make us happy and what's yeah. quote unquote, successful. And then you reach it, you reach the pinnacle of your sport. And if it doesn't make you happy, it's like, what's the point? Yeah. Or to continue, continue it. It's like, you have to, you know, like for me, like I reached a point where I was like, okay, if I want to continue competing, it's been fun up till now and I've done really well and I've hidden those high pinnacles. But if I want to stay at that level, I need to make lifestyle adjustments that I might not want to do, you know, like that might just make the overall quality of life less fun. There was something I was wondering uh, as we were talking here, like when you had been doing indoor comp climbing, what was the tr the transition to outdoor like? Like, I I'm just starting to transition myself to outdoor climbing because I do mostly indoor, but now it's like living here in Utah. There's so much climbing in like little cottonwood, big cottonwood canyons, and I find it so much harder to climb outside, especially on granite. What was the transition yeah. like for you? For sure, it's a lot harder. Um, it's a harder transition. It w it wasn't. It wasn't an easy transition, but I also did it when I was so young, right? Like, it's kind of hard to, I, I do remember it being quite humbling and challenging because you'd like climb these grades in the gym and then go outside and climb like full letter grades. Easy. Oh my God. Yeah. Like I was, I remember being so pumped when I top roped my first like 11A. Oh yeah. Yeah. I could do this. I could go out there and do that. And then we went climbing in uh little cottonwood and we also went down to red rocks with some friends over thanksgiving it's like hey this is a five nine i can lead climb nope <laughs> yeah yeah i know for, for, for sure and, and you know like i had that same kind of kind of humbling uh, experience and transition from getting from sport climbing to traditional climbing where all of a sudden you have to place your own gear and that makes things complicated and and this winter i've kind of dove in a little bit more than normal to like winter climbing which is its whole other <laughs> It's a whole yeah. other, uh, beast of, of things and uh, something that I've dabbled with over the years. But um, this season, I've kind of put in a little bit more time than I normally normally have just because the snow has been so bad. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You be skiing more. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's pause for a second on your education. You You said you went to college in Boulder. Most people probably assume that means CU. Nope. Not, not so. No. Um, so I went to Naropa and I, this all kind of, which is like a liberal arts school that was founded by a Tibetan Buddhist monk. Um, I 
let's see. I mean, it all has to do with climbing, really. It all is tied in in some weird way. Like I moved to Boulder um, to be a professional climber. So like that was like that was that um, my my parents really wanted me to get an education. So I was like, sure. You know, and they were like gracious enough to be like, we'll help you kind of like while you're in college, if you, you know, commit to getting an education. So I went to community college for a semester and was like, just getting my bearings, you know, like settling in, was going to go through the CU application process. And then all of a sudden found out about Naropa, which, you know, I'd been, I'd been introduced to Buddhism in high school by a friend that I met at the climbing gym. Um, And then uh, I was living at a friend's house who with one of the people that lived there too went to Naropa. So I kind of was like, oh yeah, this seems way interesting. If I'm going to like have to learn something, if I already know the trajectory of my life, you know, <laughs> I already know that when I'm done with college, I'm going to try to be a professional climber. Like why should, why, why should I like try to force some career path? Let me just like study what I'm super interested in. Which was? Which was I double majored in um, religious studies with the emphasis in Tibetan Buddhism and uh, Buddhist psychology. Do you feel like you learned anything that from oh, that education sure. that well that particularly was applicable to climbing because climbing is such a mental sport. You know, that's like I mean uh, there are some parallels, but it's also pretty difficult to really tie those parallels together because I mean climbing is a super selfish like individual activity, uh, and, and I, I think that takes away from. I think there's mindfulness practices within climbing and, and athletics, but um, I, I think I think it's really hard to like authentically and honestly draw um, similarities between the two. If that makes sense. It's not the answer that anybody wants to hear ever. <laughs> well, no, it's, <laughs> it's honest. I was more curious if. It, that education helped get you into into a, a headspace that maybe was useful as you were tackling these harder and harder challenges. And yeah, I mean, in, in some ways it did for sure. Uh, and, you know, because while I was in college, I was doing a lot of meditation practices and, and whatnot like that. But in some ways, it's that's kind of like almost like cheating in a way of like using those those mindfulness practices for a whole other kind of purpose. Um, and that's that's what I mean by like it's not really fair to to draw the similarities in in some ways, but I think ultimately it's there. I think being in nature and climbing and all that stuff is uh, is its own mindfulness practice. I just have a hard time talking about it that way because here I am just like traveling around doing things for me. I'm not, you know, what I'm saying it's like a, it's like that's really like doesn't really sit well with me to be like, Oh yeah, this is my spirituality is rock climbing. Like it's like, oh, yeah, no, like I go rock climbing because it makes me feel good. And yeah, sure. That makes me a better person and makes me happier. And I'm able to be nicer to other people and I've been able to engage the world and, and do some goodness from there, like teach kids. And it's gotten me into, you know, in, environmental stuff and it's, it's gotten me all over the world, but like it's climbing my spiritual practice. Like, no. Right. <laughs> Well, you, so it sounds like you've reached this level of enlightenment from school <laughs> where you can say, no, this actually is not that similar. <laughs> yeah. When we were talking about uh, mindfulness, and this is what was coming to mind, like if 
over the years of climbing, like you've had a mindfulness practice to like help yourself deal with things like anxiety regarding heights. Like my wife and I have been recreationally climbing for a long time and we'll still get to the top of a route where we know we're on the rope, but we're, you know, 40, 50 feet above the ground. And there's just like this inherent anxiety and even a little bit of panic that's like sometimes set in because you're worried about falling. Like, is there any mindfulness that helps dealing with that? Do you experience that still at all? Um, you know, I, I would say like in the beginning of like certain different times, times of seasons, like if I'm like starting to be big wall climbing or something like that, like it takes a couple of days to get into it. And honestly, and I would just say like, go back to your breath and just like take a couple of breaths and relax. And, you know, I, I think that's often kind of the answer to, to, to everything, uh, in a, in a, in a lot of ways and a lot of different activities and different kinds of mindfulness practices is, you know, it's the one consistent thing that we have. So um, if, if you can learn to, to control it in one way or another, then you're, you're in a good place. Mm. Well, okay. Also related to your education, before we get into all of your accomplishments, I didn't know this about you, but apparently your education came in handy on a national geographic trip. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess fast forwarding just a little bit in terms of time, because it'll make sense for that is uh, after college, I kind of dove into just to being a professional rock climber and, and went on the road full time and eventually got sponsored by the North Face um, after about a year. And that's where uh, I was offered this kind of unique opportunity to go to the Mustang Valley in Nepal and study these uh, caves work with archaeologists to like kind of like get into these caves that like the entranceways had eroded um, that were Bun, which is pre-Buddhist um, cave dwellings. Yeah. Whoa, that's oh. so cool. So yeah, you, were, cool. you were using your expertise as a climber to, to help these archaeologists access something that was literally physically too challenging for them to get to. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I did it for, I went on two trips um with Corey richards uh was the national geographic photographer on the trips um and then a team of team of archaeologists that uh and pete athens led the trip he's kind of an old-time kind of high altitude everest climber and has been kind of on the north face team for as long as the north face team existed basically he was like one of the first people they brought on as a professional athlete um and yeah it was wild he he had spent a lot of time in nepal so had kind of these connections and, and stuff. And it was, it was a wild, wild experience of like crawling into these like bizarre caves that were, some of them were, were burial grounds. Some of them were like temples type stuff. Some of them, some of them were living quarters. So, yeah. Whoa. Like, so what was some of the things you were finding in there? So interestingly enough, what the purpose of the trip was, is they wanted to, the hypothesis was they wanted to see if the Mustang Valley was an alternative road to the Silk Road. What did they find out? They they realized that 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 was the case because they found they found human remains and were able to test their teeth to figure out where those people were from. Um, so yeah, it was pretty pretty fascinating stuff. Wow, yeah. that's so cool and like such an amazing way of using what you keep calling this selfish yeah that you do in like a way that's helping you know academia. 
Yeah, I know. It was really cool. And, and, you know, it was one of those things that I wish we could have done more and more of it. Um, I know the teams ended up going back, um, but it was, it's, it was big trips. Like one of them was like almost two months and um, like hard, hard work. Both trips that I went on ended with rescues. Um, Corey fell and broke his like tailbone because it's not like fun climbing. It's like gnarly mud climbing. Um, and then uh, one of the other guys, uh, rock fell and hit him in the head, which was like, kind of like he was fine. He's fine. Lincoln else. Um, but I, I was there for that, um, whole rescue and it was, it was kind of a, yeah, kind of pretty heavy ordeal in there. So was, I was just gonna say, th- those, these are not things that you think about when you read like an archeology span journal and you see like the fact, you know, the dry results, like, oh, turns out there's an alternative to the Silk Road. You're not hearing about the people who are getting seriously injured to discover those results, you know? Yeah, yeah. it's, you know, I, I don't have a ton of experience besides these trips in that world, but, you know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's hit, or, hit or miss of like where and, and how, and, and, and some of the caves you were able to hike to the top, but how the geology formed in this area is like you, you couldn't really, like hiking to the top would actually be more dangerous than going up from the bottom. Um, so, yeah, and then a big piece of it too was it was so dangerous that we couldn't even bring them up there. <laughs> so we're doing like all of this, you know, work, and we're on walkie talkies, and they're telling us like how to like handle things and how to be super safe, and and uh, all of this, uh, all of this stuff that was definitely like way above our heads in terms of like science stuff, um, but we 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 made it happen and, and there's a couple of documentaries on it pbs and national geographic did a documentary and um there's a big article in uh, the yellow book and yeah sweet we'll we'll link to those in the show notes for sure it's so cool and it's i mean so amazing that these people have spent a decade getting their phd in archaeology you're just getting thrown into this that's what it felt like i mean we were like like handling like human remains and like it felt a little cowboy, but at the same time, it was like super fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you should make a proposition that anyone who wants to get a uh, major in archaeology or anthropology uh, has to take a rock climbing class on the side. Uh, yeah. Has to become a world class rock climber, also. Mm-hmm. Low bar. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Double That's amazing. PhD, climbing and archaeology. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's so cool. It sounds like you could have had an entirely different career as a professional rock climber slash archaeologist if you wanted to. If you wanted to, you could. Yeah, for sure. And I think that was like, for me, that was like one of the coolest benefits of like, you know, working with the North Face and and National Geographic together is they, they kind of like they open the doors for like these weird opportunities to tell stories. Um, so that was kind of the first, first one that in my, in my career that kind of molded these two different aspects of, of climbing with something else. Um, and then, you know, there's over the years, there's been a couple other trips. I did, a I like helped a national geographic photographer, Carson Peters in Hawaii, because he needed somebody with climbing skills to photograph the lava tubes there, um, which was pretty wild. So like I was basically just his photo assistant, but he needed to be able to repel and climb into these caves and stuff like that, that, uh, you know, I was, that's what I was there for, um, which was super cool. And, and from there, Carson and I became friends and 
did this really crazy trip to um, China to document. They were writing an article. The article was on karst formations, which are these big limestone formations that are all over China. Um, and we went on a trip with Karsten and uh, Emily Harrington's here, right? Keith Lidzinski came as well. He was doing video. There's like some really funny videos from that trip too. We were able to, uh, basically we were just figures on a landscape. Like they needed, they, they, they needed somebody to, um, give these big formations perspective. um, I'm actually looking at pictures of this right now as we're talking, and it looks like something out of Kong Skull Island. Yeah, it's pretty wild. So this, this was, this was kind of a big moment for me because I, I actually got the National Geographic grant to go on this trip for this article and had to like kind of organize and produce and deal with the finances of everything. So it was kind of like a big, like businessy, like trying to figure out like everything, you know, and, and you get there and it's like really complicated because like you email them and they say you have permission, you show up, you don't have permission. And then you're like, well, what does it take to get the permission? And I'm like, we're here on like, with National Geographic, everything needs to be permitted, you know, like in writing, signed and, and all of. Um, so it was, it was a really like kind of political, like we like ended up sitting in this one place on show for for like four days, not climbing. Um, and then eventually they finally gave us like permission to climb, not everything, but part of it. But we could only climb like when the park was closed, not open. So we're like climbing at like, you know, like weird hours of the night. Like it was just like, <laughs> like it just turned into this like crazy, crazy experience. But, you know, we got to like summit these really thin towers that were, were super cool. And, and, you know, all of us are still, you know, friends and hang out together and made some really cool photos that I'm looking at right now too, because Keith has some of them printed in his office. And that's so cool. Wow. So it sounds like you've always had this mind for connecting climbing two other things in a way even though you say again i'm the selfish climber it's always kind of been about more than that for you yeah and it's not it it has always been about more than that and i tried not i like i'm like not there's a very short period of time where it was like only about climbing i would say but for the most part most of my life i've always needed to have something else going on Mm. Uh, i was like there's a lot of climbers out professional climbers out there that are like really good at just honing in on the one thing and i i i've i've done it in the past but i'm less good at it and i enjoy it less than like kind of having multiple multiple pots to put your hands in so to say i hate to switch actually back to uh kind of a selfish question for a second but i am curious to know like what would you say your hardest uh climb has ever been like what's been your greatest accomplishment in climbing Ooh, that's a hard question um uh, over the years i mean i feel like one of the there's a couple hard ones that stick out more than others um i think this route in eldorado canyon called the iron monkey is probably one of the hardest trad lines in in eldo and maybe colorado which i did was one of the first first ascents i'd ever did is probably in like the 514 b category um uh, and then i don't know i got a really early I, I think a lot of the trad climbs a lot of the 514 trad climbs i did i got an early ascent of the cobra crack which is this like kind of infamous uh finger crack in squamish british columbia that was uh just kind of like a 
it's like one of the most iconic, beautiful splitter hard crack climbs. And then, and then more so than individual routes, like a lot of the trips, like I've done a bunch of trips to China and we went and developed uh, this area called Liming where I put up a kind of a hard, hard route that's got one bolt in it and mostly gear. Um, but like, like big trips like that, like done to there, to Kyrgyzstan, to Crimea. Like, I think those are the trips that stick out more than specific ascents, so to say. You see, every time, every time you say these, I look at these pictures on, uh, on Google and it's just, it's, it's these otherworldly places. Li Ming looks like something out of like Avatar. Yeah. Li Ming is wild. I, I would actually kind of go back there. I've, I've been, I would say one and a quarter times. <laughs> I went once for a month. And then I went back on a very, I was actually just telling this, this story the other day. Um, I went back really quickly because the North Face and Black Diamond did like a, 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 a festival there. And they, it was like a last minute. They needed somebody there. And I like, I literally, I think it was in China for like three days or something. Like it was kind of, a, it was an aggressive. An, yeah, I would, would never do that again. <laughs> yeah. Aggressive. I like that term. Yeah. Going back to Boulder, because I feel like we're all kind of in this headspace exploring locally right now. When you put up, you do the first ascent on Iron Monkey. Like if you read about it online, people say that's one of the possibly the hardest climb in Colorado, right? And but I mean, since then there's been other since then there's been other ones that are that are harder and and climbing so weird because you get into these nuances where like. Like it's short and bouldery, but there's other longer ones that, you know, so it's like kind of like a weird, I, I don't, I've never been a believer in like saying the hardest, but one of the hardest. Cause there's like a handful. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're modest. I'm going to hype this up for you. Very, very hard climb. I know very little about climbing. So walk me through this. What did, did you figure out this line yourself? Had it already been thought of and no one had done it? What was that process like of from start to finish thing that no one had ever done? So this, I first saw it when I was like learning to trad climb, like, man, this is, this is a long time ago now. Um, but I went up there and got the second ascent of a route called Superfly that hadn't been repeated in like 15 years and went up there and did that and saw this line to the left that people had been trying um skip gear in and um there's a couple other people it was put up as an aid line and someone tried to free climb it so aid climbing is when you like lean on gear um to help you up it and i just like basically kind of like threw myself at it for a long time until i did it <laughs> yeah um Cause it had been tried before. So, so there's, I guess like doing first ascents, like in Eldo, typically somebody had gone up it or wrapped down it. So it's like, there's like, there is a little bit element of kind of, you know, that somebody's been there before necessarily, but it's not, it's not as like, like in some of the stuff in China, like you're, or other places where I've done first ascents, like you're like, nobody's touched the rock. So it makes it, makes it feel like a little more adventurous and a little bit, a little bit different for sure. Um, but the process of doing a first ascent in general is kind of like, and a difficult first ascent is like, yeah, you always have the doubt as, is it possible? Nobody's done it before. Like, am I the one type of scenario? So a lot to, a lot more to overcome doing a first ascent than repeating a route, even if it's like of an easier grade. 
Yeah, because you have no like beta or anything of where to place gear or anything like that. Exactly. You have to like figure out all of it. And what's kind of the headspace like when you're doing that? When do you know or do you not even know when it's worth to keep problem solving on something versus you try it and you're like, okay, this is impossible. I'm done. Uh, That's a good question. I think for me, I used to, my patience with it used to be much higher when I was younger. I would just throw myself at things forever. And some of them I I still haven't done. And that's kind of like some of my big goals for this year, like to kind of go back to some of these projects that like I didn't do when I was younger. Um, And I, you know, like so many things got in the way of like going on adventure climbing, going on all these trips all over the world that I kind of like left and didn't really like train and focus on some of these things so um it's i don't have a good way to answer that actually because for the last couple years it's been like i'd be able to like touch something and be like oh i could probably do that it's going to take some effort but i've always been the kind of person that's like "Ooh, i can't do this right now i'm gonna go and get stronger and come back Mm. um and then i've touched some things that i'm like Oh, I don't know that I'll ever be able to do this, but that's like a later in life thing. Cause now, you know, there's, there's like people that are climbing like way, way hard that I, I'll never do, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Like the 15 A's and 15 B's yeah. that we're starting to see. It's like, is that even a number? What is that? Climbing a sheet of glass? Yeah, like five. Yeah. Five, 15 A's and V 15s and V 16s. Like these are things that are, that are not, you know, I, I've, I've always been, yeah. I bouldered a V5 last December and I was like, "Mm, mm." applause everybody. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, you've seen me try to boulder. So I, anything over a V2, I'm just like on the ground, kissing people's feet. All of them well to me. Um, So, okay. Kind of around this time, you're, you're putting up these really hard first ascents. You're traveling all around the world. At some point, you also decided you're not busy enough, so I'm going to start my own business. How did that happen and why? <laughs> um, so I, yeah, there's a moment in my climbing career where I was going to Canada a lot and climbing with my buddy, Will Stanhope, and um, we were trying to do, we were do, trying to put up first ascent, which is uh, on this kind of, wall called Snowpatch spire and um i was just spending a lot of time there I, he had he did it and i didn't um that wasn't at this point in time that hadn't happened yet but we were just up there kind of kind of in the trenches of like throwing yourself at this thing and not sure if it was possible you're just dealing with weather you're in the mountains and he he was like i'm gonna train to be a mountain guide or a, a full rock guide and um I was helping him with his studying for his exams, like tying, just like going through all the process, all the things that you have to learn to be, to be a guide, a rock guide. And I, I was like, man, I should, I should, should find a way out too. You know, like I can't be a professional climber forever. Like there's going to be a time when um, it doesn't really work for me. Um, And I was like kind of some of the allure with climbing was, starting to fade a little bit. I was starting to get into other sports, um, sort of paragliding, just kind of like a, a, a bigger kind of goes hand in hand with the, with the, the business story. But, um, 
I just had this idea of, you know what, like here I am, like it's like a rainy day in my tent and I was like drinking Starbucks via. So I was like, man, this kind of sucks. And I, I hate Starbucks and I like, man, there's nobody making a good instant coffee out there. And, and a part of me was like, well, if I can make an instant coffee that even tastes just as good as Starbucks, I'm way cooler than Starbucks. Maybe people would buy it, <laughs> you know, basically like that was like, that was kind of the, the idea and um, went home from there and teamed up with my business partner at the time, Alex Hannafin, who had worked in the Boulder natural food industry for, for quite some time. And um, we kind of put our heads together and kind of like, I knew the, I knew I wanted to call the company Alpine start because um, an Alpine starts when you wake up super early to go on whatever adventure you, you want. It's typically in, used in the climbing world, but it's kind of become a term in, in uh i would say a lot of the outdoor communities so um yeah we launched the company and before we knew it um, we had product on the shelves we sold direct to consumer for a while and we launched with just one product um which was a original blend medium roast coffee 100 percent arabica from columbia um that's still like our trade ship uh product right now um after that we uh, kind of the team grew, we hired somebody and, uh, launched two new, two other products from there. Um, and kind of all along while this was happening, I was kind of balancing my life as a, as a, you know, small business owner and professional athlete. So I was like still going on a ton of trips and still doing all that and still like trying to be involved before you, before you get more into Alpine start, you also mentioned at this around this time you were getting into paragliding. Why paragliding? First question. Why paragliding? Well, okay. So I guess the, the truth with the why paragliding is, is originally I, I wanted to do, wanted to get into base jumping, but I just had lost too many friends to that. It's pretty dangerous, but the idea of like an easier way down, to be honest, um, I had like kind of starting was starting to get into, um, not, not even getting into, but I wanted something else to do besides rock climbing. So like the idea of like, climbing these big mountains and flying off of them seemed like, like a pretty cool thing to do. Why not? Um, it's possible. <laughs> and, uh, kind of learned, learned to paraglide kind of like with that in mind and had some pretty good beginner's luck in the beginning and flow flew off of Pico de Orizaba in Mexico, which is the highest peak in Mexico. And, um, I think this was like 2017 was like training to go to the Himalaya and got in a really bad paragliding accident and broke like uh, just about every bone, like over a dozen bones in my body. Yeah. So we had like, it was just kind of like a training run and we climbed this uh, hiked this peak in outside of Bishop called Mount Tom. And it was kind of supposed to be like a standard hike and fly kind of thing. And I was with a handful of people and a couple of people flew off and there was two of us left. And I basically got, was trying to launch and got plucked by a thermal, which like picked me up and kind of like slammed me down into the talus field. Uh, and I had like a water bottle, like a metal water bottle in my bag that like totally got dented from where like my back back hit that probably saved, saved, saved my spine a little bit. And uh, I didn't hit my head or anything, but I like had like an ice axe in my bag that went through my calf and broke both arms fractured, a bunch of vertebrae and my neck, my back broke my scapula, a bunch of ribs. And it was like, a, it was, it was a pretty, 
pretty gnarly scene. The rescue was pretty tough. They couldn't rescue me right away because uh, it ended up getting too windy <clears throat> pretty quick. So I was up there for like eight hours um, kind of waiting for a rescue. But there was there was a, a medic there with me that they were able to land him, but they couldn't long line me out. Um, so they ended up long lining me in the evening uh, in like a Chinook, which is the big two prop helicopters to Bishop. And then I got air ambulance to Reno. Um, and I was in Reno for like 10 days and then came home and was home for, yeah, it was like a pretty long, I was in a neck brace for just over 10 weeks. Yeah. And, uh, it was, a, it was, it was in retrospect, it was a pretty short recovery for compared to other things. Like I definitely got pretty lucky because none of my breaks besides my arms were that bad. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a grim, grim time. How does it shift your perspective and how does it, how are you able to get yourself back out there again after you've recovered? Yeah, there's a long and steady, steady path back to doing anything. I mean, to be totally honest, like I'm not paragliding anymore. That's kind of like, um, maybe I will way later in life because it's not, you don't have to be that, but I'm, I've, I've kind of got way more into skiing and other, other things to like kind of fulfill that and, um, but it still was hard to get back to like doing semi dangerous things, climbing, um, just cause you, you've, you've, you've hit rock bottom and you know what that feels like and you don't want to, you're, it's like a visceral fear, um, that honestly kind of just fades with time. I mean, that's like, they say, they say they, they use this term with, with alpinists more than climbers, but I would, I would use this for anybody that's been injured. Then they say the best the best alpinists have the worst memory because it sucks. You're out there and it's like hard and it's cold, but then you get home and you forget about it and you're like, I want to go back. So there's kind of a little bit of that element to it where it's like really hard because I feel like my body remembered what it was like to be broken in the, in the, for a long time. And it's only been like a couple years. Like it's, it's been like just over two years, three, three years, just over three years. And uh, I would say after two years, I was like able to like try my hardest climbing again. It took that long. I, I love what you said about the memory thing, because it's so true. I mean, ultra running is the same, same thing. Yeah, it was just, yeah. Terrible while you're doing it. But there's something about the endorphins you get after or the satisfaction. Totally like finding yeah. meaning and purpose that it draws you back. I'm, I'm curious, do you remember anything about those eight hours that you were waiting to be rescued? A little bit. Yeah, not a ton. I have like one weird memory of like thinking that I was alone up there uh, and like trying to move and like realizing that seeing a water bottle that I knew wasn't mine and being like, okay, like someone else is here, you know? Um, but for the most part, I was pretty in and out. I lost a lot of blood and I wasn't like fully unconscious, but I was like, there's, yeah, there's just, there's just moments that I remember, I would say. You had this horrible, your body's broken and you also went through a breakup kind of around the same time, right? Yeah, it was, a it was like a weird, hard time. There was like, uh, I was broken. I went through a really hard breakup. And on top of all that, like a good friend died like a month two months into the, into the whole thing. So it was, yeah, I don't know. Um, when it rains, it pours. Yeah. When it rains, it pours. And I don't know, I, it was definitely, it was a really dark time for sure. And, and I don't know, it lasted, like I started getting back into climbing and it, and it, uh, 
that definitely helped, but it, it, it lingered for a while, all of those things, because they all were like kind of tied together. And I didn't, I didn't quite understand how to, how to differentiate what pain was what I would say. Was this before or after you started Alpine Start? This was after, and that's like kind of, you know, Alpine Start's one of those things that during that, that really probably helped pull me out of all that because, um, I was home more, so I was putting, and I couldn't climb as much. So I was like putting way more effort into the business, um, which was cool. And that's kind of the first place, first time that um, we started experimenting with some of these newer products that are not on shelf right now, but there's a Kickstarter live for them. So that's like, we just launched them uh, a week ago, but that that was the, kind of like the tipping point that helped the company like start this pivot that it's funny that like that's the timing right it's like happening right now but that's when we had the idea for these products was like in my recovery of like okay like well like i should like take cbd or i should do medicinal mushrooms or like turmeric for anti-inflammation or you know so we i started like kind of experimenting with these functional ingredients to help my um, to help my body recover. And we were doing that at the office. One question before we get there, I think it yeah. really needs to be stated that you are an incredible cook. I can say <laughs> really, really like your, your bread is some of the best bread I've ever had. You're just, you Thank love you. it. It's like, you can tell it's like this love and passion of yours and you're really talented at it. I'm curious how that ties into the business. If it does at all. It does. I mean, I think, I think when the coffee company started and I was like, like even way in its infant age stages, I was like tasting so much coffee. Uh, just, honestly, I got to a point where I was just trying to refine flavors, like to like, just like eat more, cook more, drink more, has its ups and downs with both coffee and alcohol. <laughs> but like, it, it, you know, we're talking about things, we're talking about a way of describing what you taste, you know, and if we're going to, if we're going to talk about that, like, one of the the areas is is wine, right? Like, like the people have put, you know, years and years and years, hundreds of years of effort into um, uh, a vocabulary and a way of talking about how things taste. Um, so from there, you know, getting into cooking and, and making cocktails and, and, and that sort of thing um, kind of like really grew with the start of the business, I would say. Um, and then, man, wow, it's been a while, but this year or last year, 2020, which not going out to eat or anything kind of took things to the next level of just like cooking a lot uh, and being, being way into it. Um, so I don't know what the question was, but. Yeah. I, was, I mean, you answered it. I was curious how your relationship with cooking yeah i guess i've always loved cooking but yes it was uh in the beginning stages of the business it was a deliberate thing for me to like try to work on my taste buds i, I know that sounds kind of weird but like to try to like cook and taste new things and you know try new things and yeah so you mentioned ref trying to refine your palate kind of it, part of it being for figuring out the coffee situation, I'm assuming. Like, what was that process like of figuring out, okay, this is where we're sourcing our beans. This is why we're getting them from here. How do you go? Like, what's that whole process like? It was a process of trying a lot of really, really bad coffee, to be totally <laughs> honest. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. We decided that we weren't going to like kind of that. We decided that we wanted to work with a partner basically in the most easiest way to say it, that was going to help us kind of roast and dehydrate and stuff like that. Um, just because we wanted to create something that was affordable, um, that was like sustainable, affordable, and, you know, scalable mostly. Um, uh, there's a lot of pretty cool ways now that some of these smaller coffee shops are kind of dehydrating coffees and, and doing a lot of cool stuff, but it's really expensive and it's really not that scalable. So from the bat, we wanted, that's what we were working with. Um, so that kind of limited us a little bit, but there's still a lot, there still was a lot of places that could, could fit that bill for us. So we, we, it took us a, it took us a while to find what we were looking for. Yeah. And then from there, the newer products were, were really hands-on beyond just tasting and, um, of like kind of formulating and, and figuring out what ingredients we wanted to use and, and making and tasting and making and tasting and making and tasting and um, giving them to friends and making special blends for friends. And, and yeah. Yeah. Can you walk us through a little bit? You were talking about in your recovery, you were experimenting with medicinal mushrooms and these other things to help you. A, do you feel like they helped? And B, how did that then influence you creating these new products? And also what are the new products? Yeah. So we, Man, we were just trying everything. So a big thing is Michael Crouch is my business partner. He's actually the CEO of Alpine Start, and it's kind of him and I kind of run the show and steer the ship. And he actually grew up on a mushroom farm, which is like kind of and has like a very unique, um, interesting story with medicinal mushrooms in his family. So he was kind of like was able to introduce introduce me to that. And, and there's a couple of big brands out there that are that are doing making mushrooms, you know, making mushroom coffee. Um, so part of it was knowing what's available out there. Um, obviously like CBD has been a big boom. We don't have those in our new products, but that's just something to mention and say that like, that was like part of like our thought process of like where we were going with what we were doing. So like we had our foot in the grounds for figuring out what kind of ingredients um, we wanted to play with. And the new products are, uh, coffee with benefits is what we're calling it. We're calling it our with benefits line and a matcha with benefits. And uh, yeah, so we, we like the kind of like play on words and then at their immunity and focus. So after kind of experimenting with on myself, and then we sent a lot of products with a couple of athletes. We sent Corey Richards and Adrian Ballinger to Everest um, with their own blend um, and we sent Chris Burkhardt to Iceland on like a big bike ride with a blend for him. Um, and these blends, we were kind of joking around. Like at first we were like the YOLO blend, like whatever, like we're just going to put everything in it. Um, and then we kind of fine tuned it. And, and what we settled on was um, a product that has lion's mane and reishi mushroom extract. And we're using uh a mushroom extract that is all the mushrooms are grown in the United States and it's organic. Um, and it's basically flavorless, which is pretty sweet. Not basically it is flavorless. So it doesn't, it's mushroom coffee without kind of the earthiness of that you would normally get. So a lot of those coffees basically are just like ground mushrooms and ours is not. We also added vitamins A and D into these products. And then we also have uh, MCTs from coconut. So 
Um, they're both like one's like kind of tastes like a matcha latte. Um, and the other one is like tastes like a coffee with creamer, but have all those added ingredients in there. And uh, it's been it's been cool. It's been it's cool to have a product line that um, kind of started started somewhere with all these ideas and kind of like we really narrowed our focus into that. And, and honestly, if, if these are successful, I would I think the idea for me is to continue coming out with with products that are that are like this, that are beneficial, beneficial um, and functional. So they're not just like a morning coffee, you know, or yeah. What is vitamin A specifically? What does vitamin A do? Vitamin D, everyone knows vitamin D is good for you. Energy, blah, 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 bone health. Yeah. So, so yeah, the biggest thing with vitamin A is it is, it is like, I think one of the, one of the things it is really good for your eyes, but it's really good at boosting your immune system. Um, and it plays an important role in developing cells. That's so useful when you're out on a big expedition and you're getting worn down, you know, because I feel like that's when your alpine start. I, I have this memory of being in Ethiopia with our friend, Claire, oh, like, yeah on a running trip in Ethiopia and Alpine Start kept me alive on that trip because we were waking up in the dark to go run before we had these busy long days. Yeah. And definitely could have used some of the coffee with benefits on that trip because I got so worn down. And I feel like that's every every trip ever. And that's the uh, the other thing with these products or we wanted to make products that are other products like people only used on trips or camping or climbing trips and stuff like that. But we wanted a product that was like an everyday drinker product. Um, and that's, that's kind of like for me, like I've been drinking a little less coffee recently. So I'll have a coffee, I'll have one coffee and then I'll drink the matcha. Like I'll have another matcha instead of another coffee. Um, that's kind of cheating though. Does matcha have more caffeine than coffee? No, it actually has less. So the matcha has only has 25 milligrams of caffeine. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and and that is like people think, but the the thing about matcha that's a little different than coffee is it has L-theanine, which is a natural occurring amino acid that green tea has, and it basically helps the body counterbalance the effects of caffeine. So you'll see now like there's a lot of other functional products that have L-theanine in it as well because it's almost like it really like helps balance like the jittery aspect of coffee. That's interesting because that's the main reason I can't drink coffee. Yeah. So there is like you could there are L-theanine supplements and there are there's no that was what. Yeah. L-theanine is super. It's a kind of an interesting one, but I, it is naturally occurring in in green tea. So a lot of people can, uh, you know, don't like how caffeine affects them in coffee, but can drink caffeine in green tea. Cool. That's really good to know. Great. Now I just further my my uh, hot beverage addiction. Can't yeah, wait. And- I think this, you know, last year was such a crazy year. Like we were supposed to launch these products in the beginning of 2020. And just with everything that, that happened last year and the business shutting down and all this stuff, we, we honestly decided to, we, it kept getting postponed like every, like every month. Oh, next month. Oh, next month. Uh, and then finally we launched it uh, the end of January and we decided to do it on Kickstarter just because it's a really easy platform to like get it out to like a lot of people first before before they can find it um, in retail shops. So sweet. We'll, we'll definitely drop links to the Kickstarter because you have some really sweet deals on there. We do, yeah. And there's going to be more sweet deals every week. We're kind of dropping some special sweet deal drops. Alpine Start 
and also you as an athlete are involved with Protect Our Winters and also 1% for the planet. Can you talk a little bit about exactly POW represent that has a has a POW shirt on? I love it. Uh, can you talk about what inspired you to get involved in, especially in environmental activism? I mean, I think for me, it's like what got me uh, inspired to get involved is 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 kind of just the simply simply like I've like built a life and a career and so much fulfillment has come from from being in the mountains and being outside. So um, Protect Our Winners is just one of those great organizations that, you know, ultimately what they're doing is they're fighting to keep those places like accessible to, you know, like like fighting for the climate, the climate to make those places that places that we can enjoy forever. Yeah. It transcends just snow sports. Like you love to ski, but it's also about. Yeah, definitely. It's, and, and it, yeah. And working with protector winners over the, over the last couple of years has been really cool because uh, I believe like Emily and I were some of the first and Hillary Hutchinson were some of the first non snow sports athletes signed on the team. Uh, I mean, it's not really, you know, like, I, like signed up to like work with, with pal and uh, they, over the years have like now created all these like subgroups of pal. Like I know Abby's involved with pal trail. I'm involved with pal climb. Um, and it's been kind of awesome to watch them, them grow and expand out sort of like just the snow sports category. Cause for many years, um, that's kind of was their main focus because Jeremy Jones, uh, as a professional snowboarder was the, the one to found protector winners. Um, so that's been like kind of really cool to see and, you know, I've had the opportunity to go to D.C. and go to, um, you know, the Colorado Denver state capital of Colorado and speak and testify um, for all sorts of various things. And and for me, it's kind of been a cool experience to be able to go and talk about, yes, like, here's my life as an athlete. Here's my life as um, traveling to these places in the wilderness that, you know, like I'm seeing climate change firsthand, like I'm seeing glaciers, you know, rescind, like I'm going to the same areas over and over every year, but I'm also like a small business owner in the outdoor industry. And, and it is, you know, like, like we all need to understand that it's not just about that. It is about money, you know, and, and able like to be able to discuss that to people that only their main priority is, is, is money in some ways to be like, Hey, yeah, look, like these industries are huge. Like I'm affected, you're affected. Um, we like, this is really important beyond just enjoying nature, you know? I also, okay. I feel like we would be remiss here. You're involved in so many different things. You are a professional, professional athletes still run a business involved in nonprofits. Can you walk us through what a typical day would look like for you? Yeah. A typical day. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, every day is obviously different. Um, most recently, Alpine Star has been getting the majority of the time, I would say, a, a lot more of the time than normal. Um, we've just been super busy working, but I um, obviously always make time in the winter time to, to do a little bit of everything. So <clears throat> maybe instead of a day, like a week would look like I'll go to the gym like a couple days a week, two days a week to do like weights and stuff like that to stay fit. I'll go to a climbing gym a couple days a week, just been going to a friend's home wall. Um, mostly, uh, I'll try to take one day off during the week to go climbing or skiing, uh, and then kind of go out both days on the weekend in, in the winter time. Um, is that's kind of like the, I make those, you know, athletic, whether it's skiing, climbing or ice climbing, like a major priority. 
Um, this spring, summer, and fall change a little bit more because I'll just be like work, 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 and then I'll be gone. Like I'll go for like a month or so. Yeah. So it's kind of constantly a, a balance of like figuring things out. I don't know. It changes every day. <laughs> There's a feed off. I'm curious about talking about this balance. Like it seems like we have the three. Uh, it's like a triangle. You have on one side being an athlete, you have on one side being an entrepreneur, and on another side, you have your work with the nonprofits like PAL. Mm. Do you think there's ways that like your involvement with one of them then translates into things that help you on the other end? Yeah, I think it all helps each other at this point now, for sure. But I mean, the, the, like the kind of bottom line is, is it's, it's all, it all started with being a professional athlete, you know? Um, like that's kind of how I started the business. That's how I got into working with protector winners and stuff like that. So um, though it's often the easiest one and the one that gets neglected the most, it's the one that I, tr I keep trying, forcing to put the most effort into. <laughs> it, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. You know, it all comes from being professional athletes. Why you hear these stories all the time of, uh, professional athletes who wind up becoming business owners once they're out of the sport. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think you learn a lot when you're a professional athlete, um, like a lot of discipline, a lot of, and then you just get to know so many people too, you know, it's like a community thing. So I think that's, uh, and I think that's really, really what it is. And uh, it is kind of cool. You're seeing a lot of professional athletes starting their own businesses recently, which is cool. There's like a, a bunch of us. For you as an athlete and with Alpine Start as a company, what are your long-term goals? What's basically next for you, do you think? I think for me as an athlete, I have some kind of like local climbing goals that I'm pretty excited to try to wrap up that have kind of been lingering for a super long time. Um, and then as a company, you know, I, I think these new products, this new Kickstarter is, is kind of the beginning of where I'd like to take the company for sure. Um, I kind of would just like to be able to create more products that are kind of functional and beneficial to people that are more than just your caffeine hit in the mountains. That's such a good thing to be striving for. Yeah. All right. Well, Matt, in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it and uh, wish you all the best, man. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show, Matt. Good luck to you. Hope to catch up again soon. As we talked about a little bit, Alpine Start is looking to raise $100,000 on Kickstarter as part of launching its newest venture, Coffee with Benefits and Matcha with Benefits. Their Kickstarter campaign is open for about another week of when this episode actually aired, so I believe until February 25th it's going to be open. So make sure you get yourself over to Kickstarter and help out. We'll include a link in our show notes, and we'll also include a link to Matt's Instagram page as well. Thanks again, Matt. As a few last-minute reminders, if you like today's show, please write us a love note on Apple Podcasts saying so. Uh, make sure to check out and follow the Out and Back podcast on Instagram. Make sure to snag that sweet 50% discount on Gaia GPS by going to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast. And then finally, make sure to join us in two weeks when we're back on episode 27. Until then, I'm Shanti, along with Abby. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.